As you're making your way back to your seats, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29 this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, and when you've arrived there, will you stand uh, out of reverence for God's word as we read together. Hear the word of the Lord, Paul writes this, he says, now I rejoice for you and am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body that is the church I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with His strength that works powerfully in me. Heavenly Fathers, we consider this idea of disciple-making with purpose. I pray that You would give us grace to hear and to understand and that the Holy Spirit would be shaping our hearts and our minds that we might walk out this reality of disciple making. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, church, this morning we, we have come to our final sermon in series entitled Disciple Making Disciples. So we started it back uh, the very beginning of January, uh, Disciple Making Disciples. And if you remember back to that first sermon that I preached in this series, I told you uh, that this series was very much birthed out of a burden. It was very much birthed out of a burden. It was a burden to see us faithful to our mission, right? Our mission statement is that we exist to make disciples, to show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. And as I had evaluated for most of, uh, of 2019, uh, this series kind of was, was a burden that was on me of we need to really think through what it looks like to be disciple-making disciples. But it wasn't just about being faithful to our mission statement uh, as it was there on paper. It was also a burden to see us faithful to the Word of God. Because we believe that our mission statement wasn't just something that we pulled out of the air, but we see it in Scripture. It comes from the Word of God that, that we are called to go and make disciples of all nations. I have attempted to contend throughout this entire series that disciple-making is not optional for a believer. That disciple-making is not for those that are super mature or super spiritual or those who have been called to some sort of vocational ministry, but that disciple-making is the call of every believer. While also contending that disciple-making is not fundamentally an action to be completed, but as we've recently been talking about, but, but disciple-making is a consistent lifestyle to be lived in. Disciple-making is not what we do. We are, by definition, as Christians redeemed by the blood of the Lord, we are disciple-makers. Disciple it's what we are. And I'm excited uh, to bring this series to a close 
Not because I've not enjoyed talking about it and not because there's not more to say about it, but I'm excited to bring it to a close for two reasons. First, in light of the series, in light of the past two months, we now have the opportunity as this corporate body of believers to walk this reality out of disciple making with a better understanding of what it entails and what it requires of us. But the second reason that I'm excited to bring this to a close is this was, this was always of my plan as I mapped this thing out, and I didn't say it intentionally, maybe I should have, because it probably would have been good for all of New Breed to be here, but, but what was intended at the beginning of this series was to end the series with the vision for New Breed for the next 10 years. In light of this series, where are we going and what are we expecting God to do? And so it won't take long. It's going to be the very end of this sermon, but, but, but I'm excited about getting there. I'm excited about fleshing out for you over the months and years to come what, what we believe God wants this church to look like, the vision that he has given for us. Again, the mission is not changing. We exist to make disciples to show off Christ where life exists. We, we believe that. That is ingrained in our DNA because it comes from Scripture, but we believe that God has given us a unique vision for what it will look like in 10 years if we walk this thing out faithfully, and I'm excited. I'm excited to see what God is going to do. But there's more to come on that. But as we bring this series to a close, I want to draw your attention to what I have tagged this sermon to be as disciple-making with purpose. Disciple-making with purpose. <clears throat> you know, my, my wife was very in, encouraging to me this week. Um, she is very perceptive of me, sometimes even more so than I am of myself, of kind of where I spiritually and mentally and emotionally she's really good about that sometimes she tells me things about myself and I'm like that's not true and then like a week later I'm like oh it's true but I can't tell her she was right I I, I can't I can't tell her that well cat's out of the bag fam but she was like, hey, you know, one of my best friends uh, lives in South Carolina. He's a man that God has used mightily in my life to grow me, to look more like Jesus. I, I am convinced that um, I probably not I would not be where I am if it was not for God using his faithfulness to grow and disciple and shape me. Many great men and women have come along the way, but God has used this, this guy uniquely in my life to show me what Jesus looks like. And so his wife called um, and said, hey, we're doing a little surprise thing for him for his birthday. It's not anything real big but we'd, we'd love for you to come down and I was like initially I was like well that's a lot for you know that's a lot of driving for what would need to be a short trip because I can't take all this time off work and needed to be here on Sunday um, and getting the family there and so I was like ah, I don't think I'm gonna go and my wife was like y you're going like you need to go and you, you need to go by yourself and take what she called some introvert time right to be quiet and, and I realized how much I needed that because like the six and a half hour drive I, th I think I was in silence the entire time no music playing or not just think some of y'all are like that's my you know that's that's my prison right there but for me it was like oh I needed it um and I did it for half of the way back but then I got bored and listened to some sermons um because that's what I do when I get bored. Uh, but, but anyway, so we went down there, and it was, it was good. It was a f refreshing time. But one of the things that always happens when we get together, right, is uh, we always kind of do like a life checkup. I mean, we talk frequently, me and my friend, but how are things going? And how's, life, how's your walk with Jesus? How are you loving and pressing into him? How are things going with your family? We always do that. But what inevitably comes up is some of the stories from our past, now, some of you have been kind of grinding with me since the beginning of my ministry here, and you've been here alongside me for 12 years. And you know that 12 years ago, Michael, is a little different from the Michael that you have right now. Um, 
A lot of stupidity 12 years ago, a lot of foolishness. Um, so needless to say, there are some funny stories that come up when we reflect back on our time together. But one of the stories that came up, and there's a purpose to all this, I promise. One of the stories that came up, I actually wasn't talking with my friend. I was hanging out with some other friends who I used to work with. And, and he said, do you remember that time that you got almost every vehicle that we had stuck in the mud? Now, let me give you some, some background here. So for when I moved to South Carolina, I went there initially to work at a camp, um, a Christian camp, Love on Kids, and they were gracious and offered me a full-time job, and I stayed um, during the off-season, and I worked maintenance during the off-season. If any of you have ever been to a camp, you know that when you say you work maintenance, like, you, you do anything. Like, you're not trained in any of it. You just do it, right? So anything from, I mean, I changed sewage lines and had no idea how to change sewage lines. So who knows what's happening in the ground underneath these cabins. Um, I became an expert in tree care overnight. Um, And by expert, I mean there were a lot of close encounters. We almost never met, you and I. Um, But on this particular day, we were working in a wooded area and we were needing to clear some trees out, so cut some down, trim them. And so we had been doing that for a few hours. And this was me and and my best friend. We were working together. The guy went down there to see and we had been cutting all these logs and whatnot. And we were like, this would be a lot easier to get this stuff out of here if we could just get a vehicle down here. He was like, yeah, that's a good idea. He said, well, my truck has four wheel drive. I'll drive it down into the woods and we'll load up this wood and get it out, you know, no, no problem. And, and so we were, that's a great idea. So we drove the truck in and somehow the truck managed to get wedged between a tree on its left side and about a six foot embankment on its right side, where if it went a little bit more to the right, it was going to topple over. And we said, well, this is problematic. Um, so we said, I've got an idea. We've got a skid steer. I'll go get the skid steer. I'll hook that sucker up, pull this truck out. No problem. Great idea. Went and got a skid steer threw a rope on the truck, tied it to the bucket of skid steer, started to try to pull that thing back. And before I knew it, as I'm trying to go back, this thing slid sideways. And somehow, this skid steer got wedged between another tree on the left and a six-foot embankment on the right, where if it fell over, it would topple. And we said, well, this is problematic. I know. We have a backhoe. Let's go get the backhoe we'll tie both of these things up to this backhoe. We'll pull these suckers out, no problem. Hey, that's a great idea. So we went and got the backhoe. We threw a rope over the skid steer. We had to get the skid steer out first. And in our mind, it would have been like a chain reaction. If you pull one out, everything's going to come this time. So we tied this backhoe up. And believe it or not, you can get a backhoe stuck. And somehow, this backhoe got wedged behind a third tree on its left and a six-foot embankment on the right. Now, at this point, we knew we had one piece of equipment left, an old raggedy John Deere tractor. And so we figured we better make this one count. My friend was wiser than me. He said, hey, man, we might need to call somebody. I said, you know what? That's a good idea. So we called the most logical person, his father, because there's something about fathers where they can accomplish anything that children can't accomplish. So we sat there and waited. He showed up, and he showed up, and he looks at this, and it was a sight to be seen. I'm talking about three big vehicles stuck in between trees, wedged up by a six-foot embankment. And he asked us a question when we got there. It was a really profound question. He said, what was your plan? What were you seeking to accomplish? 
Now, what he was getting at was the fact that to accomplish this specific task, we had to be intentional and purposeful in the steps that it would take to accomplish the ultimate goal. See, we knew we wanted to get these vehicles unstuck, but our method was just throw some rope on it and pull it out. There wasn't a lot of intentional thinking about what might happen if this goes sideways. Clearly, three vehicles were stuck. And so he said, see, we need to think about the steps that it's going to take to accomplish the goal. And like a father with his magic father powers that I haven't been a father long enough to get yet, he rigged up the most insane pulley system with rope. And it took him like three minutes, but it looked like a maze of rope. And he said, all right, now let's hook this to the tractor. And he got in, and with a simple pull, all of the vehicles just slid right out. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Because as I think back, I realize the value of the lesson that he taught us. Oftentimes, when we are trying to accomplish a task, it is the strategic planning and the purposeful decisions that you make that actually make all the difference in the world to completing the task. It doesn't, know, it doesn't matter how much you want to complete the task. It's the planning and the purpose that goes into preparing that will either determine whether you are successful or whether you are not. Here's what I'm getting at. I would contend with you this morning that if we are going to be faithful in the purpose of making disciples, there are some purposeful steps here in Colossians 1 that have to be taken if we are going to see any success in this endeavor of making disciples. There are some purposeful steps that we must take. Now, I want to be clear before I get into these points what I mean by success. I do not mean, hear me, I do not mean that if we do these things, we are guaranteed to see thousands upon thousands of disciples made. I think God could do it, but this isn't, this isn't a machine where you put these actions in and you automatically get disciples because there's this thing called a sovereign God. And he has a plan and he is working to bring it to fruition. But what I am saying is in terms of success is that if we want to be found faithful in lives that are marked by disciple making, these steps must be present because that's success for the life of a believer, is it not? To get to the end of this thing and hear the sweet, simple words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what we're working towards. That's success. It's not seeing thousands of disciples made, though we pray for thousands of disciples to be made. Amen? We're going to talk about that when we get to our vision in a minute. We have some numbers for you. But, but we know that success will ultimately be determined by whether or not we are faithful. So let me get into these, these four kind of purposeful steps that must be present if we are going to be disciple makers with purpose. Here is the first thing. We must endure with purpose. Endure with purpose. Look at verse 24 again. Paul says this. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. Now here in the book of Colossians, what's going on here is that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae to encourage them in their faith. As is typical with Paul, he begins by telling them of how he praises God for their faith, for their hope, and for their love. And he tells them how he has heard that the gospel is going forth from them and it is bearing fruit. Praise God. 
And he tells them that he is continuing to pray that they would continue to grow in knowledge and wisdom so that they can continue to live faithfully. And he then enters into this beautiful nation of the preeminence of Christ in all things, that Jesus Christ is first in everything. And he reminds them that they were once separated from God, but now, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have been brought near. And Paul was privileged to be the one to be one of the men that God used to help make them disciples of Jesus. And so he is writing, thanking God, and and, and reminding them that he sees God's hand at work in their lives. He sees them becoming faithful disciples. But then we get to this passage in our text where after all of that, Paul says, and now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body that is the church. And in essence, what Paul is saying is that the reality of God's work in the church, the reality of God's work in bringing about mature disciples causes him to rejoice over every hardship that he has experienced for their sake and for their growth. He rejoices in every suffering. Now, what Paul does in this verse is he teaches us what it looks like to endure with purpose, but specifically as it relates to disciple making. Because here's the honest truth, church. I don't want you to ever say that I deceived you or that I lied to you or that I was not uh, forthcoming with you. If we are going to be faithful in making disciples as God has called us to, it will, without fail, bring hardship and persecution and affliction and trial in our lives. It will not be easy to make disciples. And you know this to be true. Come on, saints. How many times have you been pursuing any aspect of the faith with faithfulness and Satan just lays it on you? I mean, just lays it on you. I mean, there was a season in my life where I genuinely thought it would be better for me not to read the Bible because every time I pressed into God's word, that day was like hell on earth for me where Satan just laid it on in temptation after temptation. This doesn't happen when I'm not like faithfully running after Jesus. Maybe I should just not run after Jesus. No, but it's the reality of faithfulness is that as we are pursuing the things that God has for us, don't forget, we talked about this with the temptation of Jesus, we have a real enemy, and he knows when the church of God is making ground for the kingdom of God, and he hates that. And so, yes, hardship will come, persecution will come, trial will come, but what Paul is painting a picture of here is what it looks like to endure that with purpose. But I want you to look at Paul's response because it is, in actuality, so different from so many of ours. You see, if we are honest, I'll talk about me, I don't know you. I mean, I know you, but this is y'all's response too, any of you. But I think if we are honest, so many of us in the midst of hardship, in the midst of preparing to face hardship in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of struggle, our mindset is one of just getting through it. We see it as a reality, this this situation that we are in, as something that simply must be overcome so we can get to the joy that follows. Are you tracking with me? For so many of us, when the, when the fire just seems to be raining down us, when we are being refined and it is painful and we are in the midst of trial and persecution, so many of our minds go to the, the most Christian thing, the most godly thing, is just to put a smile on your face and get through it believing that joy is on the other side. Well, I want to tell you that joy is on the other side, but what Paul tells us is joy is right there in the midst of it as well. See, what Paul says is not that I rejoice in what it will be like after my suffering. He says, I rejoice in my suffering. 
You see, the fact that hardships came and that they were coming upon him stir up within him a real joy in the Lord. Now, let's just be transparent here, okay? And I'm going to ask you to be brave and you can raise your hand. How many of you on a consistent basis, meaning more often than not, when trial comes, it stirs up within you joy in the Lord? How many? Couple. That's okay. Praise God for your growth, right? That it stir- but that's not the bulk of us, bulk, uh, of us is it? many of you, when hardship and trial and pain comes, your mentality is, let me just get through this because I know it will be better on the other side? Yeah, that's me. That's me. But what Paul says is, no, 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 no. The fact that hardships, that they have come upon me, it stirs up within me real joy in the Lord. And so I don't know about you, but as I read that, my first response, the typical response, the question that I asked as I was diving into this text was, how? How? How do you get to the place where in the midst of suffering, you are marked by rejoicing? And I think the answer is in what comes next in Paul's statement. See, he says, now I rejoice in my suffering. Now notice this, for you. And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body that is the church. You see, there are two reasons that Paul is able to rejoice in his suffering. And this is important. Write these ones down. Two reasons that he is able to rejoice in his sufferings. First, he knows that his suffering is for the good of the church. He knows and he believes that his suffering is for the good of the church. Notice how he says, now I rejoice in my suffering for you. And then he says, I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his, or for his body, that is, the church. You see, Paul knows something here. Paul knows something that we have said over and over that you have heard from almost all of your pastors as we have preached, but I'm going to remind you of it again. Paul knows and he believes that your suffering is never meaningless. That in Christ Jesus, your suffering is never meaningless. Your pain is never meaningless. Your trial, your temptation, the persecution, the fierce persecution that comes upon you to test you is not strange, it is not foreign, it is not meaningless. And church, we have to believe this. If we are going to be faithful in disciple making, shoot, if we are going to be faithful in the Christian life, We have to believe that the suffering that God allows us to endure, the trial and the temptation that his hand permits against us is for our good and for God's glory. God is doing something. He's doing something. And sometimes he is doing something for you. I think that's an easy one for us to swallow. God is doing something for me. And we believe he is, right? James 1, count it your joy when you face trials of various kinds. You know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance have its full effects. So you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. So according to James 1, part of the reason that we face trials of various kinds is because God is developing in us this perseverance. The Greek word is there is hupomene, the ability to stand up under immense pressure, pressure. And in so doing, God is making us perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. We read in, in 1 Peter that we shouldn't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us to test us as if something strange were happening to us. No, but in that, God is 
refining us, and refining us is painful, right? Dross is drawn out from gold when it is, sub, when it is in the, the presence of immense heat and pressure, and God is killing things in us, working for our good, and He's working for His glory in the midst of pain and struggle, and know that God works like this because the greatest good that was ever accomplished came through the greatest suffering, Jesus on the cross. We are privileged to share in that suffering. And so God is doing something in in the midst of pain and struggle and hardship. But I want you to hear this. Sometimes, sometimes God allows you to feel pain and hardship and persecution, and it's not even about you. That's when it's tough. Couldn't you have picked somebody else, God? Couldn't they have suffered for the good of the church? Couldn't they have suffered for the good of my brother or sister? But sometimes God will let us go through the trial and the pain and the hardship for the good of our brothers and sisters around us. And we know this is true because we saw it last week with the church in Thessalonica. Do you remember how they mirrored what they saw in Paul? And one of the things that they are commended for is their endurance in the midst of great persecution. Do you remember where they learned that from? They watched Paul endure with great persecution. Perhaps, perhaps Paul endured that great persecution not to refine a specific thing in him, but because God knew that this church needed to see it if they were going to be testimonies to Macedonia. And if Macedonia was going to be a testimony to Corinth, and if Corinth was going to be a testimony to the church for the rest of eternity. Perhaps God knew what it would take for this believer to grow, and he knew that it meant that you had to go through the fire, that you had to go through the pain and the struggle, but we still rejoice. Why? Because our deepest desire is to love God and love people. And if loving people and helping them follow Jesus means that we bear on our body the marks of Christ for their good, so be it, because Jesus bore on his body the marks for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. And how prideful can we be to think that if God did that to the perfect son of man, that he would not do that with us. But the second reason that Paul is able to rejoice in his suffering is not only because for the good of the church, but because he knows, and I love this, that in his suffering, he is like Jesus. He is like Jesus. Now that statement that I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body that is the church, that's been tricky for some people. Some people are like, what is he saying there? And I just want to explain it briefly. Paul is not saying that Christ's suffering and his death was not enough. Because it could sound like that, right? Where he says, I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction. You, you could almost interpret that like he's saying, like, Christ's suffering wasn't enough, so I've got to complete the work that he didn't finish. Paul is not saying that. He is not saying lacking in terms of insufficient and incomplete. Rather, he says lacking in that there was more to come for those who would be saved. That when Christ suffered, it wasn't the end of suffering in this world. And there was more to be had, and it was to, my, to be primarily had by the church and the saints as they went to make much of the gospel moving forward. And Paul understood that to suffer like Christ is to be united with Christ. He says in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you. 
It is a gift to you. It has been given to you. It is granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. It has been granted to you. But we have to remember that this is not an option for a believer. Scripture makes that clear. You've heard this so much, but I just want to remind you, right? Second Timothy, that those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted, right? Those who want to live a godly life will, not may, not it could happen. They will be persecuted. Jesus hates you. Remember that it hated me first. And if we're going to be like Jesus, then we will endure what Jesus endured. And that will be hatred from the world. The world should not love you. For Jesus' sake, not because you're a jerk, just throwing that out there. The world should not love you as you run hard after Jesus. Right? We, we are polar opposites from this world, and hardship is part of what it means to be a Christian, at least hardship in this life. But we believe that this light, momentary affliction is creating an eternal weight of glory. You see, in all of this, we find joy in the fact that as we endure persecution for righteousness' sake, we are like Jesus in our suffering. Therefore, we have hope and we can have joy. And we are reminded that as bad as it gets, that, that we won't be crushed. We won't be killed by the suffering in terms of our soul. They might take the body, but they can't kill our soul because we are secure in Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. And we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. Why do we suffer? Why do we carry around the marks of his death so that his life can be made known through us? And if that is not disciple making, I don't know what is. And our aim, like Paul, as we enter into this disciple-making reality is to endure with purpose. But it means we've got to realize that the pain is coming and the hardship is coming, but there is real joy in the midst of it because it is for your good, the good of your brothers and sisters. And in all of that, you get to be identified with the greatest person imaginable, Jesus Christ. But not only do we endure with purpose, the second lesson that we see here in Colossians 1 is that we serve with purpose. We serve with purpose. Look at verses 25 through 27. He says, I have, this is Paul saying, I have become its servant. Who's the servant that he's become? Its servant. What's he talking about? The church. Exactly. Right. You can talk back. It's okay. I came to have a conversation with you, so you, you can talk back. He says, I have, I, have come, uh, I have become its servant, the church's servant. He says, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages. What's the mystery hidden for ages? The gospel, amen. Side note, freebie, anytime Paul talks about the mystery, it's always the gospel. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, Paul served with purpose, and specifically, he served the church with purpose, and he identifies himself as a servant. Now, that's interesting. I think it's very important because what we know about a servant is that every servant has a what? A master. We all are on it today. 
Every servant has a master, and Paul understood by identifying as a servant that he was not the master. He was the servant, and his willingness to serve flowed from a genuine heart of humility where he understood his position. Now listen to me. Track with me. Paul understood that you cannot be a Christian and be your own master. To be a Christian is to accept the call to follow Jesus, to follow God wherever he leads and recognize that he is king. And if I can be transparent with you for a minute, too many Christians today are running around claiming the title of servant but acting like they're the master. I mean, can you imagine if you did that at your job? I mean, picture your boss. I'm assuming some of you have, but some of y'all might be balling right and you're the boss. Doesn't apply to you. No, it applies to you. Okay, we'll find another example. But can you imagine if you went into your boss who hired you, right? He called you, said, I want to give you this job. You know, I think you're qualified. I, th- I think that you can do this work. You say, thank you so much. I will gladly accept this role. Let's say the role is the associate. And you come in and you, you start working in your associate role. And then your boss starts asking you to do things that make you a little uncomfortable. Not in a weird way. Like just you don't want to do it. And then he starts asking you to do some things that's hard, that might cost you something. Well, I don't want to do that. And then you decide, well, I know how to fix the problem. And you go into his office and you say, I just want you to know I'm the boss now. You work for me. You won't have a job. Some of the people in this room work for me here at the community center. Come into my office and do that. You won't have a job. Actually, I might give you my job. Uh, We understand the stupidity of that, right? Yet for some reason we make that disconnect of how stupid it is for us as Christians to say, I'm going I'm to accept this call on my life. I'm going to accept this grace that you have given me. I'm going to accept the role that you have called me into. But the moment it gets hard, we say, nah, I'm going to be the master here. God, you take a backseat to me. And we joke, but too many Christians today are running around claiming the title of servant, but acting like they are the master. Because when the king calls, we respond. And Paul understood that God had called him to this work. Notice that he says, I have become a servant by what? By God's commission. So yes, he served the church, but ultimately he was serving the God who had called him. He was commissioned to a task. What was it? To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now time won't allow me to dive too deep into this, but if you track back to last week, I want you to recall that one of the things that we said that was that we have to operate out of a burden that God gives us. Do you remember that? Paul had a burden. Do you know what it was? To see the Gentiles come to know faith. Because when Paul says that God wants the Gentiles to come to know faith, that's not, those aren't the only people God wanted to come to faith. God wanted the Jews to come to faith too. But Paul had a burden and so God was operating out, God was allowing Paul to operate out of the burden that he had given him to make much of Jesus in front of the Gentiles. But I came here not to talk about the burden. We did that last week. But I came to tell you this morning that you too have been commissioned. That God did not just commission Paul. He did not just commission Peter. He did not just commission Timothy and Titus. He did not just commission the apostles. But God has called you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
God has called and commissioned you. And I would argue that God has placed you strategically where you are to be a gospel witness and a disciple maker wherever he has you. Do you know that God is at work in your home to make disciples? You know how I know that? Because he put you there. Do you know that God is at work in your job right now to see disciples made? Do you know how I know that? Because he put you there. Do you know that God has placed this church here in this location for this season and he has commissioned us to be the prophetic voice of God declaring that the kingdom is at hand, declaring that there is one who brings light into darkness, there is one who brings life where there was once death, there is one who brings hope and joy and peace unimaginable, there is one who brings a new identity and his name is Jesus and we are to be the prophetic voice of God here. He has called us. He has called us you. We are commissioned by God himself to be his hands, his feet, and his voice. The question, though, is will you willfully disobey and play master or submit as a servant and make much of your great king? Now, I want you to know that this service takes purposeful intentionality because one thing that I have learned in my time in ministry and it's only been about 12 years in official public ministry but there's one thing that I have learned no one ever stumbles into disciple making no one stumbles in to helping people follow Jesus we have to serve with intentional purpose here's the third thing and I'm going to try to pick up the pace here if we are going to make disciples with purpose, we, we, not only, uh, we not only have to endure with purpose, we not only serve with purpose, but we also have to engage with purpose. Engage with purpose. Notice what Paul says there in verse 28. We proclaim Him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, Paul understands that disciple-making has an outcome. And the outcome of faithful disciple-making is presenting someone mature in Christ. That's the goal. Paul understood his objective. My objective is to love you so much with the gospel of Jesus Christ that at the end of this, as you stand before Jesus, you can be presented as one mature. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. You see, the goal of disciple-making is to help Christians move from immaturity to maturity. The goal of Christian disciple-making is to move from milk to meat. In other words, to help people know, love, and follow Jesus better. That is what we are trying to accomplish. And therefore, any action that Paul takes is purposeful engagement to bring about that outcome. But the amazing thing, and I'm so thankful that God told Paul to write it down, is he maps out for us exactly how it is that he brings about this result of presenting people mature. Look at what he says. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. 
warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Him we proclaim. And what Paul knows and what he has already established even earlier in the book of Colossians is that the only thing, hear me church, the only thing that bears lasting fruit, the only thing that changes people, that helps people fall more in love with Jesus, that helps him run after him, the only thing is the gospel. It's the gospel. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He says this, right? So he's talking about, about the church in Colossae, and he says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. Now check this out. This is what I want you to see. He says, You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. What is bearing fruit and growing all over the world? The gospel. The gospel is what's bearing fruit and growing all over the world. Now look at what he says in verses 9 through 10. And I love this. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Now, maybe this is just my over-analytical mind, but that statement is so fascinating to me, bearing fruit in every good work, because Paul acknowledges in verses 4 through 6 that it is the gospel and only the gospel that bears fruit. But as he is seeking to disciple them and help them walk in a a manner worthy of their calling, he says so that they can bear fruit in every good work. And I want you to see this. Because of that statement, the implication here is that you can do good work and not bear fruit. That's very important. You can do good work and not bear fruit. See, he wants them to to bear fruit in the good works. He doesn't say bear fruit so they can do good works. He says bear fruit in the good. So you can do good works and not bear fruit. Let me give you an example. I think I've shared this before, but it's been a couple of years. Y'all are so, you've heard whatever. You know my stories. It is what it is. I studied counseling in school. I studied biblical counseling for my undergraduate. Um, uh, We won't get into how that was, but that's what I studied. Um, one of the kind of pioneers of that is a guy named Jay Adams. And Jay Adams was basically the guy who said, hey, we need to take counseling back into the hands of pastors. Right, pastors can, can deal with the soul. They can deal with, with, with what's going to take it back. So he's a very interesting fellow. <clears throat> I've read a lot of his books. And uh, at the time, I, was, I had just moved back to Louisville. And he was living in South Carolina where I lived. And so one of the guys that I led worship with, who was a physician, said, oh, yeah, I, I know Jay. I'm his doctor. He said, I'm not supposed to tell you that, but I'm his doctor. I was like, Really? He's like, I can set up a meeting. Yeah, I drove down the next day. I was like, oh, I'm coming. And I spent all day with this man, right? I mean, we, we sat in his office. He, Jay Adams is an interesting dude. I mean, he loves Jesus so much. Um, but I remember when I first got there, I was so nervous and trying to make small talk. And my man had a like down to here. And he's like, I was like, oh, that's a great beard. He's like, in the time I've saved from not shaving, I've written three books. What have you done? And I was like, oh, this is going to be an intense day. This, this is going to be an intense day. <laughs> really intense day. And he sat down and like he had a stack. I think it was like 12 books that he had written. He just slid them to me and said, read these. I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Funny thing, this is a side note. I like opened my copy of one of the books that I wanted to ask him a question about something. He just grabbed it and signed it. And I was like, well, I didn't really want you to sign it, but thank you. But anyway, he said something to me. And for you, you're like, yeah, absolutely. This, of course this is. But for me, it was so profound as a young man being trained in ministry, thinking through how to love people well. And he asked me a simple question, but to be honest, it's one that I'd never thought about before. He said, Michael, let me ask you a question. If you take a man who is addicted to alcohol and you help him stop drinking, what have you actually done? Because now you've sent a sober person to hell. He said, I don't know about you. I'd rather be drunk there than sober. 
He says, let me ask you this. If you help a man who is, or a woman who is addicted to pornography, stop looking at pornography, and that's all you did. What did you do? Nothing. You still sent a person to hell. They just don't lust as much anymore. He said, no, if we are going to have any lasting impact in anything we do for the kingdom of God, the gospel has to be brought to bear on everything that we do. And so we've got to reckon with that because I also think a lot of Christians are thinking they're doing good works and that God is pleased, but those good works aren't bearing any fruit. Nothing is happening for the kingdom. Too often our discipleship is nothing more than self-help coffee we get together over a cup of coffee. How are you doing? Oh, that's so great. What are you struggling with? I'll pray for you. Can I encourage you? You need to keep going. And the gospel is never brought to bear on any of that. We've done nothing. We have done nothing. Because it is the gospel that get, gives hope when we are discouraged. It is the gospel that brings about change when sin is present. It is the gospel that will undergird everything that we do and everything that we are. And if we want to bear fruit in helping people follow Jesus, we have to bring the gospel to bear on their life. And that looks a little different than just proclaiming the gospel because sometimes disciple making is showing you how the gospel changes these things in their life. But we have to bring the gospel to bear if we want to bear fruit in every good work. Our, our aim is to proclaim him because he is our power. Listen, we sing this all the time, but things change when we call on his name. And this leads to our final point this morning about disciple making with purpose. Sorry, I'm running over. I shortened that last point. There's more to it. You can talk about, talk to me about it later, but that's the gist of it. But here's the final thing that I want you to see. There's a lot of purpose, right? We endure with purpose. We serve with purpose. We engage with purpose. But here's the final thing. We hope with purpose. We hope with purpose. Look at what Paul writes in verse 29. He says, I labor for this. For what? To present people mature in Christ. I labor for this. But notice this, and I'm so thankful that he said this because without this line, we could get it really twisted. He says, striving with his strength. That works powerfully in me. You see, our hope in disciple making is not in ourselves. Some of y'all, in all honesty, need to hear that. I'm not judging anyone, but I know some of us can be tempted to be puffed up. Amen? Our hope in disciple making is not in ourselves. It is not in your elegant eloquent speech it is not in your apologetic arguments it is not in your ability to rationalize with people it is not ultimately based on your theology and your degrees our hope is the power of god at work through us you see we hope in him as we proclaim him and as we proclaim him church there is power Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. If this one just doesn't kind of get your blood churning a little bit, he says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Where is the power of God? In the name of Jesus. You see, the power of God is realized in disciple-making as we proclaim him. Paul says earlier in that passage in 1 Corinthians, he says, we proclaim Christ crucified. That's it. Why? Because there is power in that name. And it might be foolishness to those who are perishing. So as you seek to make disciples, if somebody receives it as foolishness, you can rest assured that at this point in their life, they are perishing. But for those of us who are being saved, and we are all being saved... It is our power. It is the power of God at work. And so him we proclaim. We have hope in the fact that the power doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus. There is power 
of God, and it's realized in disciple-making as we proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. There is power. God will work. Because let me tell you something. It has always been about Him. It has always been about Him. Let me free you from a burden real quick this morning. And I genuinely hope this frees you from a burden. No one's salvation depends on you. And no one's growth depends on you. No one's discipleship actually depends on how well you walk with them. Because salvation and discipleship have always been God's work. We are just privileged to be invited into it. Will we be faithful? See, I want to be clear about this, church. We serve an exhaustively sovereign God. We serve an exhaustively sovereign God. And I find great comfort in the fact that those that he has called, he will get. And I want to tell you this, not to, not to belittle the work that we do, but just to have an honest conversation. God does not need you. He does not need you in the disciple-making process. God spoke to Balaam through an ass. I'm sorry, my King James came up. Somebody asked the first time you listened this whole sermon. What did he say? God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. God spoke to Elijah in a whisper. God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. God has spoken through dreams. God has spoken through visions. And our God said that if you won't be faithful, I will make the mouthless, throatless rocks cry out my name because I will accomplish my purposes. You see, we just have been privileged to be a part of it. And the question is, will we be faithful? But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, that God will get his. God will get his. But that is not meant to lead us to be lazy. That is meant to spur us on that all we can do is succeed if we are faithful because it doesn't depend on you. If God decides to disciple, to allow someone to grow to follow him, it's not because you did it right. It's because God has ordained before the foundation of the world, this one is mine. And when I start a work, I will finish the work. But we are invited into it. And I genuinely, I want that to free you from a burden because I think some of us, like, like there's the Isaiah ministry, right? Isaiah ministry, remember Isaiah, he has that vision of the Lord and he's so fired up that his sins have been forgiven, rightly so. And the angel says, who will go? And he says, here I am, send me. And he said, great, we're going to send you to a people that will never listen, they will never hear, and they will never respond. Some of you will have Isaiah ministries. It doesn't mean you're failing. My fear is so many of us are claiming Isaiah ministries without doing the Isaiah work. Because Isaiah grinded for the gospel and he never saw anyone. Never saw anyone grow in discipleship. And God told him it would happen. But he works. You can't claim the Isaiah ministry unless you're willing to do the Isaiah work. But I believe that things have changed a little bit since then because my king said the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. I think more of us will have that ministry than Isaiah ministry. Some of us just have to step out onto the field of disciple making. And I believe and we are believing that God will do incredible things if we are faithful. Now, I've gone over, but I don't care, okay? We believe that God will do incredible things if we are faithful. And I want to lay out for you the vision that we believe God has given us for New Breed Church if we are faithful. And you might have thought that after this discipleship series, we were done with this. Now, think about it. This is going to come up for the next 10 years. Because this is what we are about. We exist to make disciples, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to pursue it, and we're going to believe that God will bring this vision to fruition that he has given us. So here, that we, that 
If we are faithful in the disciple-making process, we will be a church centered around Christ that is a safe harbor for the broken and the hurting. We believe that we will be a church where people from different ethnicities and stories and backgrounds come and are safe and are valued and loved. We believe that we will be, over the next 10 years, actively training future ministers of the gospel from this community for this community. But here, here's where it gets fun, fun for the vision that God has given us. You might not have known you were getting this, but when you moved me into lead pastor, you said cast the vision. So here's the vision. We believe that over the next 10 years, we will see an active membership of over 500 people at New Breed Church. And we will not grow beyond that unless the Lord redirects our vision. Because if we go over that, we don't want to be a mega church. We need to be sending people out. Oh, but that's part of the vision too. So we believe that we will see an active membership of over 500 people over the next 10 years. We are believing that God will bring about 250 baptisms over the next 10 years. That's roughly two a month. We're already behind. But if we don't think two people can come to know Jesus a month when we've got 70 people out there proclaiming the name of Jesus, either something's broken or we're not really working. Again, we believe in a sovereign God. If he says no, but we believe that this is where he is leading us. We believe we will see 250 baptisms take place. Here's where it gets even more fun. We believe that we will plant or revitalize three churches in the next 10 years. We believe that we will send out 10 individuals into the mission field. And we believe that not everyone sitting in this room will be here in 10 years because God will have sent you out. These are not wishes. These are not dreams. This is where we believe God is taking this church if we are faithful. And I'm just telling you, this is where we're going. I'm pleading that you will get on board with us. We believe that God will do this. This is the vision that he has given for us. If we will exist to make disciples who show off Christ for life. Because I don't know, I've been pumped to preach this because I get fired up about it because I believe God can do it. And some of y'all might be thinking, those are big numbers. Like plant three churches, 250 baptisms of active membership, not on the roll, active membership of 500. That seems a little ambitious. Well, let me share something with you that another pastor shared recently, a quote from John Stott that helps us think through this ambitions for self may be quite modest but ambitions for God however if they are to be worthy can never be modest because there is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God how can we ever be content that we that he should require just a little more honor in this world no, once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor and accorded his true place, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere. If we believe that God is king, we will be ambitious to see his name known. I genuinely prayed and thought through whether those numbers were too small. Because if we, if we can just catch a glimpse of this flame for disciple-making, I think we will understand better what it means to be the prophetic voice of God in a community. And I believe we will see God work. But again, we are believing, and I'm going to end with this, that God will bring this vision to fruition in the life of Newbreed Church in the next 10 years. So we will evaluate in 2030 if we all of us are faithful. So that's the question that we end this series with. Will we be faithful? Is Jesus worth it?
Is he worth it?